If you're new with us this morning, uh, we have been going through Romans, and we are today going to go through the whole chapter of Romans chapter 11. I just want to ask you a question. Have you ever wondered what in the world God is doing? Anybody ever asked that question? About every day? If you have, then you are in good company. The Jews and Gentiles of Paul's day would have been asking the very same question. Gentiles, lost and, and, and pagan Gentiles, were putting their faith in Jesus, receiving the Spirit of God, and becoming the people of God without observing Jewish regulations like circumcision. On the other hand, law-abiding religious Jews were rejecting the Messiah in mass. Things seem to be turning upside down. Those who were once not God's people are now God's people, while those who claimed that they were God's people were cut off from Christ. Now in Romans chapter 9 verses uh, Romans chapter 9 to chapter 11, Paul's repeated message is that God has a sovereign purpose in both salvation and judgment. That's been his main point in these three chapters. Though what God is doing may not always be clear to us, we can trust that whatever God does, it will always work to display his faithfulness, his power, and his glory. Now, without a doubt, God's ways are incomprehensible. You're not going to understand why God does the things that he does or even how he does the things that he does. And yet, in all he does, we can trust that everything works out according to his sovereign plan, which results in mercy for sinners and his glory forever. Now, it's true that many of the Jews of Paul's day had turned away from the gospel, but it's not quite accurate to say that all the Jews had turned away. If that were true, then it would be safe to assume that the Lord had abandoned the Jewish people altogether, but when Paul asks whether God has abandoned the Jews, he answers his own question saying, by no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. For Paul, the proof that God had not turned his back fully on his people is that some Jewish people like himself have responded to the gospel in faith. If we're to ask the question, if God has abandoned the people. Paul would clear his throat and say, <clears throat> what about me? He's not abandoned me. I put my faith in the gospel. I believe in Jesus. I'm a Jewish man who has accepted the Messiah. And so we can't quite say that God has abandoned or he has fully cut off the Jews because that's not true. As one scholar puts it, God cannot unknow the people whom he knows are his. The fact that some Jews have believed is proof that God is still keeping his promises to Israel, albeit in an unexpected way. Far from turning his back on the Jews, God demonstrates his faithfulness by saving many of them. To say that all Israel had been left out of the promises of God or had been cut out of the gospel, it's a gross exaggeration and it undermines all that God has and is doing for his Jewish people. Paul uses an analogy from scripture, and you see that analogy in verses two through four. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. 
Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, let's just track the story here. If you know the story of 1 Kings 19, then you know how Elijah began to feel sorry for himself, thinking that he was the only one in all Israel who worshiped Yahweh faithfully. From a human standpoint, his struggle is absolutely understandable. I've been in moments like this. You have probably been in moments like this as if you felt as if you were the only one being faithful. God just answers that and says, hey, don't think too highly of yourself. Okay, that's, that's not true. Judah had just witnessed the amazing power of God on Mount Carmel. You know the story where the fire falls down on the altar and eats up even the rocks and the water and the sacrifice. And then the prophets of Baal are run out of town and killed. Um, Baal had been publicly humiliated and, and, and had been in such a way that it revealed who was the true God. And yet from Elijah's point of view, it had done little good. People had still worshiped idols. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel had put a bounty on his head. He's still a wanted man. If he ever steps foot into Judah, he's going to die. He's going to be publicly executed. And so he goes into, he lies under a broom bush and he does the most sensible thing that a man who thinks he's the last one standing does. He asks God to kill him. Just take me out of this. Take me home. Let me be done with all of this. Now, while his grief is understandable, like if you truly feel, felt as if you were the only faithful one in all of Judah, the grief would be un- understandable, but it was misinformed. He was not the only one in all of Israel who had been faithful. He was not the only and last faithful man in Judah. He sees Judah's rejection of Yahweh clearly, but what he doesn't see is that God had been actively preserving 7,000 people who never even once bowed the knee to Baal. That's far from being the last one standing. He sees all the prophets being killed. He sees the altars to Baal. He, he hears the songs that they're singing in their idolatrous worship. And he has convinced himself that what he sees is the reality. And yet God has to correct him and say, you might not see it, Elijah, but I'm working. Seven thousand people. It's a far cry from one prophet. Paul argues in the same way that while it's true that a vast majority of Israel have rejected the gospel because of their works-based righteousness, there are many Jews who have and are believing in the gospel. And they stand as evidence of God's grace that is working in the present time. It might seem as if God has abandoned the Jews, but if you look closer, you might just discern some of the subtle evidence of God working among them. His grace is prevailing and saving a remnant solely by his grace, solely by his love. His promises are marching forward. Now, Paul, I think, reminds us in this. We, we, we can look at this particularly for the Jewish rejection and begin to understand that God's working in spite of it. But I think this applies to all of life. Can I just tell you, you are poorly equipped to understand reality based on what you see. 
you are not the best judges of what's real or what's really going on. Elijah wasn't. He saw what was going on and thought he was the last one. And God says, no, there's 7,000. In Paul's day, people were saying, God has abandoned the Jews. And he says, no, there's, there's hundreds of us. Think about all the Jewish apostles. God is keeping his promise, even though it may not seem that way. My friends, God's hidden hand is always working behind the curtain. You may not always see it. You may not always understand it. But even when all seems lost, we can trust one thing. God will keep his promises. Nothing's going to change that. Nothing. It's true that most of the world has turned its back on Jesus, isn't it? However, it's also true that the Lord is working and saving thousands. Did you know in the same week that, that headlines about Iran giving drones to Russia for the Ukrainian war, as the same week that you're reading those, there's also hundreds of people being baptized in Muslim Iran to become followers of Jesus. You don't always see that, do you? Or hear that. Did you know that per capita, that like, like, like just if we look at the statistics, do you know who the, what countries that Jesus' name and worship is being spread most thoroughly? It's not America. China, Iran, Colombia, you know, those, those are the countries that are growing in disciples. Countries that you might think that nothing's going on and everything's lost. Well, God's hidden hand is working. We see things from a limited vantage point. Our interpretation of what reality is typically comes from reading headlines and watching five-minute news clips. And we suddenly think we know what's happening in the world. But Paul points out God's sovereign plan may at times be hidden, and it may not always be apparent but just because you do not always see what he's doing or understand how it works doesn't mean he's not working. We can trust, even when our eyes don't see it, that God's promises are progressing. Our God is a God who works through a strange providence. We like to think of his providence, his sovereignty as clean. It's not clean in our eyes. It's not easy to understand. It's not logical from a human standpoint. God works through a strange providence. And oftentimes he hides what he does so that at the right moment he can pull back the curtain like he did for Ruth and Naomi. Hides his hand just so that at the right moment he can reveal how amazing his sovereignty is. My friends, I think it's good for us to keep in mind the foolishness of God is wiser than your wisdom. Everything God does, if you think that's nonsense, the way that he works, my friends, his nonsense is more sensical than your greatest sense, okay? His wisdom is more, his foolishness is more wise than your wisdom. His weakness is stronger than your greatest strength. If we, I don't think that God has a weakness, but if he did, it would still blow our strength out of, the, out of the water. God is wise. 
Let me just help you understand something as believers. It is better for you to trust him than to understand him. You're not going to understand. You're not going to always get it. You're not always going to fathom our infinite God. It is better for you to trust him than to understand him. And because we know him, I'm not saying know him as in we know everything about him, but because we know him, because we have a relationship with him, we can know that the outcome of whatever he does is perfect and will lead to his perfect plan being accomplished. How great is that when you read the headlines? It's strange what God allows to happen and what he doesn't allow to happen. It's weird to me. Why in the world would you do that? <laughs> like, I don't understand why God would say yes to some things and no to other things. All I know is that if you step back for a moment, look at the grand scheme of history, it tends to work out. It tends to work according to his purposes. It tends to accomplish some good goal that he has. And some things we may never, ever know because he is a sovereign God. Now, in the next several verses, Paul's goal, are you ready to understand what Paul's trying to do here? He's trying to confuse you. He wants to bring clarity, but in bringing clarity, he's only going to show you how confounding our God is. It's a strange providence. And the, the moment that you think you understand what Paul's saying, he's like, yeah, but then there's this. And he twists and turns, and it's logical nonsense here. All to show us that God works through a strange providence. Here's what he writes. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. This, Paul argues, was according to God's plan. He quotes Isaiah 29 and Psalm 69 to show that the hardening of Israel's heart does not come as a total surprise. Though ironically, if you look up both of those texts, Isaiah 29 and Psalm 69, you'll see they talk about haters of Jerusalem, Gentiles who have come to march on Jerusalem and take it. So in, in Paul's appropriation of this verse, he's basically saying that the Jews who have rejected Jesus have become like the pagan Gentiles who have set themselves against Zion. And therefore, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. Their table has become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block in retribution for them. I think what he's saying here is, They've traded places. The Gentiles are now in Zion. Those who believed in Jesus have now been brought into the family of God, into the city of God, while religious Jews have been put on the outside of it and are the Gentiles making war on it. They're the ones that are cut off and that are pushed out of the covenant blessings of God. Now, why were they given this spirit of stupor? Why did God make their table a trap? Why does God give them eyes that do not see? That's just, just to deal with the text, where do these blind eyes and deaf ears come from? From God. God's the one that gave it to them. Now, why did he give them a spirit of stupor? Paul makes it clear that their rejection has a purpose. He asks, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, was the only reason that God didn't give them a heart of faith is the only reason that they stumbled over this Messiah is just so that they could be judged? Well, he answers that question, by no means. No, it's not just so that they could be judged. Rather, through their trespass, through their sin, through their disobedience, through their disbelief, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. 
What? So let me get this straight, Paul. You're telling me in your really confusing logic. I just want you to know, if you, if you find Paul confusing, Peter did too. He talks about the, some of the, the many confusing things that Paul writes. I think he's thinking about Romans here. You know? He talks about how confusing some of Paul's writings are. But let's just keep it in, my, in, in mind that Paul is bringing a little clarity to the strange and inscrutable ways of God. He's basically saying that the Jews stumbled. They rejected the gospel so that the Gentiles would believe it. They rejected the gospels passed on from the Jews to the Gentiles. Well, that's a tragedy, isn't it? That the Jewish people of God have rejected the Messiah, and now the Messiah is being offered to pagan nations, to Gentiles. Well, what seems like a tragedy is actually God's all-encompassing plan. He allows the Jews to momentarily reject the gospel so it will pass them over to the Gentiles. Why? So that through the Gentiles receiving the blessings that they thought would be theirs would make Israel jealous to bring them to faith. Who's saved? Jews and Gentiles. How? Through a really confusing providence. God could have save the Jews directly. But then who doesn't get saved? The Gentiles. So in his sovereignty, it's their sin, their responsibility. They have rejected the gospel. That's fully on them. But God is never handcuffed by man's sin. God can work his purposes out even in this confusion of sin. I mean, God brings, raises up King Solomon from Bathsheba, the woman David should have never slept with. Right? God brings salvation from the sin of a cross. God is not handcuffed by the sins of men. And he can even incorporate, he doesn't cause, he's not the one that leads us to sin. But in his amazing providence, he can even use our sin to become incorporated into his plan. He doesn't cause any of us to do that. But he certainly can work in spite of it. The Jews reject, the Gentiles receive, so that the Jews will be made jealous and will one day receive. If you understand that, you're a better theologian than me, because that is amazing. I could never do that, right? This is like God playing chess in such a way that he knows every move that's going to be made. He's ordained every move that's going to be made, and he's going to end up on the exact spot that he's always wanted to end up. Everything he does is going to work out for salvation. Now, the, the best blessing in this is one day the Jews will be saved despite their momentary rejection. It says, now, if their trespass means riches for the world, riches for us, Texans, we have the richness of the gospel because the Jews rejected it and we have received it. It means riches for us. And if their failure means riches for Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? You know what Paul's saying here? Guys, it's not done yet. We are trying to figure out a plan that is still in progress. We're trying to figure out the work of God before the conclusion, right? We're trying to guess the ending before the final chapters even come. God's not done yet. God's going to, there's much to anticipate of what's coming in the future for God's people. 
And he continues this line of thought through verses 13 through 16. He says he magnifies or exalts in his ministry the Gentiles. Why? So his fellow Jews might be jealous and in turn be saved. That's amazing. He's like, I'm telling Gentiles about reconciliation with God, life with God, the shalom that Jesus has brought, and they are participating in it. Now the Jews should rightly be like, hey, that was promised to us. Then go get it. By faith, go, right, yes, you're right, it should be. You rejected it, though, so guess what you gotta stop doing? You gotta stop rejecting, repent, and believe. And in God's sovereignty, he's bringing these people into salvation. And Paul's expecting, totally anticipating, that someday the Jews will repent and believe and that it will mean life from the dead. Just as the first time their rejection meant riches for the world, their inclusion will mean even more. How amazing is that? It may seem as if they're permanently hardened, but they're not. God's not through with them. This is what he means by, if the dough offered as the first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Commentator Tom Schreiner explains that in using the word first fruits, Paul is signifying an initial work of God that uh, is a pledge of more to come. So what we have now with the Gentile salvation is the first fruits of what's about to happen. But a whole harvest is coming. There's a lot more coming, especially with repentance and the Jews believing in Jesus. All the work God began to do for his people in the Old Testament, for example, in the lives of the patriarchs, he would one day complete. So... All that to say, again, I don't think I brought clarity to anything there. I hopefully highlighted the confusion and confounding. God, doesn't, God isn't a God of confusion, but his ways are sometimes confusing to us. Okay, I think that's okay to say. We once again are forced to reckon with the fact that God's ways are higher than our ways. He does not do things the way we would do, does he? Just doesn't. And yet everything he does somehow works out perfectly and everything we do doesn't. So if we think that we know better than God, Romans 11 is like, you have no clue. Stop duping yourself into thinking that you can understand God's ways or God's work. Instead, just know that God is working and trust that. Now, having argued that God is sovereignly working out his plan of redemption, even though that the Jews have rejected Paul now turns to give his readers specific applications. What are we to do with the knowledge that God is working to save the Gentiles and will one day work to bring the Jews back to himself? Well, Paul gives you three applications. He says, first, none of us should be arrogant because God grafts people into his family by grace and according to his sovereign will. So if you think that you've earned your place in the family of God, And that leads you to arrogance and pride. Just remember, God can graft anyone into his family that he pleases. Okay? Number two, those who trust in Jesus must persevere in grace. We'll talk about that one more in a minute. And then finally, we must not be wise in our own sight, but we must trust God's infinite wisdom. So let's talk about not being proud. Paul continues the analogy of an olive branch, which represents the people uh, of, of an olive tree, which represents the people of God. There are two 
types of branches. There's the wild olive branches, which are the Gentiles, the the people who do not naturally belong to that tree. And then there's the natural branches. These are the biological Jews, right? The people that have naturally come from that tree. And Paul talks about how some of them have been, some of the natural branches have been cut off. That's some of the biological Jews have been removed and wild branches have been grafted in. And then he talks about the nourishing root or the, the root of richness, which I think refers to the Old Testament promises of God to bring blessing, peace, to have communion with him, that promise that he will be their God and they will be his people. They're all sharing this same root. So now that you understand some of those elements of his analogy, let's just read it. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. God in his sovereignty has removed some, the Jews, and he's grafted in wild olive shoots, Gentiles. Now, it might be tempting for us as Gentiles to flat our, flout our status as the newly adopted people of God. We might even be tempted to think that we are Israel's replacement, which we're not. I hope you know that, right? We, Israel and the church, Gentile church is a part of the same olive tree. We're not a replacement of, we're an extension of, okay? We're an aspect of. They might even be tempted to think that God has forever cut off these branches and that we have somehow earned our right onto the tree. And yet, as Paul reminds us, that such arrogance is completely inappropriate. Certainly God in his grace grafted you in as a wild olive shoot into the olive tree. Certainly that's a beautiful truth. And he removed the natural branches that were too proud to accept the gospel. But Paul warns that if he sawed, if he, if he sawed off the natural branches... If he cut them off because of pride, he'll cut off anybody because of pride. That's a dangerous warning, isn't it? Don't be proud. All through the New Testament, we hear the same refrain that God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. Do you realize that God's promises to save the world did not depend on you? He did not need to save you to do his will. He could have done it without you. It's you who depend on the promises of God. That's what he means by the branches don't support the root. The root supports the branches. The promises of God support you. You are not needed in God's plan. I I find that humbling to say. A lot of people get kind of bristled up about that because they think that I'm saying that they're not important. That's not true. You're important because God made you and you're an image bearer of God. But let let me just humble all of us. We're not needed for any aspect of God's redemptive plan right? Are we okay accepting that? You could die tomorrow and God's promises are going to be okay. I'm not going to be your pastor forever. And if the church is getting its nourishment from the root, it's going to be fine. Doesn't need me. Doesn't need any one of our elders. We're here because Jesus graciously raised us up to serve his body, but it doesn't need us. Pride is so antithetical to what God calls his people to be. Shouldn't even be a name among us. He says, do not become proud, but 
fear. In other words, instead of raising up your high heads to talk about how great and exalted you are among God's people, maybe you should respond with a trembling, joyful marveling of God's glorious and good kindness. Everything I am, all that I do, whether it be for God's people, my family, or my friends, is solely because of the kindness of God. Nothing in me. I'm a wild olive shoot. I'd still be growing on the wild olive tree, destined to be cut down. But God in his kindness grafted me in. I'm not sure I would have told him to do that. But he's kind. What room then do we have to be proud None. We stand in faith as the wild olive branches that have graciously been grafted into the olive tree by grace and grace alone. We have nothing in and of ourselves that we could possibly boast. So my friends, it's a message we always need to hear. When you come to church, you come with humble hearts. When you live with your wife, you live with a humble heart. When you parent your kids, you parent with a humble heart. You have nothing to brag about. You live and you feast and you survive and are set sustained solely by God's kindness and mercy. Do not be arrogant. Don't become proud, but fear. Tremble and rejoice in the kindness of God. Finally, let's talk about that kindness a little bit more. The inclusion of Gentiles into God's people displays his kindness, while the rejection displays his severity. Paul uses that word, not me. It's absolutely perfect, right? His judgment on the Jews is absolutely perfect and just, but it is severe. It means to be cut off and cut away from God's presence. So Paul writes this, note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you. To be cut off and cut out of God's people is a really severe judgment. Um, Such judgment contrasts that amazing grace of being brought into, of being grafted into. However, even on that we've been grafted in by God's kindness, we should never take that kindness for granted. We must, as Paul says, continue in his kindness. You see that there in the text? Provided that you continue. In his kindness. The New Testament holds out a twofold truth. On the one hand, God preserves his people, right? He keeps them, he sustains them, he protects them. All who are in his hand can never be plucked out. He keeps his people. On the other hand, there is the the urgent command to persevere in the faith. Those two things go together. I know we tend to think of those things as antithetical, but they're not. God preserves us but we are to persevere in the faith. Those who don't persevere show that they were never a part of the olive tree. Instead, they are like the seed thrown among the rocky soil. The seed initially sprouts, right? When we initially hear that gospel, we initially accept it urgently and and initially show signs of faith, but then hardship comes and suffering comes and real discipleship comes and then the sprout dies because it had no root. Real Christianity always comes with a root of perseverance and preservation. Real Christianity sustains, maintains, 
continues, plods. It doesn't come in and out like that. God has brought the Gentiles in by grace through faith, and therefore they must continue trusting his grace and keeping faith. Otherwise, they will forfeit all the blessings of salvation that God has offered them through the gospel. That's a real warning there. God's not saying that anybody can lose their salvation, but don't assume you have it if you can shirk it off. Okay? If you can dispense with it, you never really had it. Don't dispense with it and thereby prove that you have it. Live in God's kindness. Not only must Gentiles persist in God's kindness, though, they must not be surprised when God extends his kindness to those who formerly rejected it. God was kind when he took you, the wild olive branch, and grafted you into the tree. His kindness will be displayed once again when he takes the natural branches that he formerly cut off and grafts them again into his tree. I think we see here that as long as a person breathes, they are not beyond the hope of receiving God's grace. As long as a person breathes, God is going to save a lot of people we don't expect him to save. He can graft anyone he likes. Why? Because he's kind. You see, if you're struggling with pride already, then you're gonna be like the older brother who is surprised when the father re-accepts brings his younger son back into the family. You're gonna be part of the 99 sheep that are angry that the shepherd left after the one. But Paul is saying, hey, if you are saved by kindness, live in that kindness, and then expect that same kindness to be given to people right now who you might not expect him to give it to. They're gonna be Jews who, want, who persecuted the Christians, like Paul, who are gonna be unexpectedly grafted into the olive tree we should not be surprised when God gives his kindness to surprising people. I think the basic here is God's kindness must remain in a central point in your life. That you keep it at the forefront of all you are and all that you do. You live because of kindness. You survive because of kindness. And you expect God to save others because of that kindness. Grace should never lead you to self-exaltation, elitism, or pride, but instead to a humble awe that he gave you kindness, though you did not deserve it. We have a good and kind God. Now, finally, we must learn to trust in the Lord's wisdom, which will oftentimes confuse you. Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight. So he's saying, if you think you've got this thing figured out, I just want you to not be unaware of this mystery, brothers. He calls a mystery, a musterion, on purpose, meaning that there's some things hidden here that we don't always understand. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. In other words, they're all rejecting until the full number of the Gentiles, the full number, again, this means that God has chosen and he knows who are his. He's actively saving them and bringing them in. When that full, when the last Gentiles save, when that full number comes in, then in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, from the onset, Paul has warned us not to judge reality by our own sight. If we try to figure out what God is doing in the world by our, our own wisdom, we will only be confused, confounded, and frustrated. It's been said before that God works in mysterious ways, but 
What we should add to that is God's mysterious ways always work according to plan. Always accomplish his goals for them. He's, he's the only one who gets everything that he wants done at the end of the day. God will save all Israel. Now, again, Paul does not define that biologically. He's going he's gonna to save all his Jewish and Greek people. All his Jews and all his Gentiles will be saved. How many of the people that God has set aside for salvation will be saved? All of them. How amazing is that? You're not going to get left behind or dropped off. You're not going to slip through the fingers, through his fingers. He will save all of Israel and accomplish his promises. And, and by doing so, he's going to, He's gonna, it's going to result in his glory and in his praise as he keeps his promise that a deliverer, Jesus, will come from Zion to banish ungodliness from Jacob and to take away their sins. In this strange, confounding providence, God is working through their rejection so that one day, when King Jesus returns to reign on the throne, he will rid them of all their sin, all their gospel-rejecting ungodliness, and he'll save them from their disobedience. My friends, God's plan of redemption winds through the mountains of Israel's sin. It crosses the floodwaters of human rebellion, and it even extends to the travesty of the cross. And yet, despite all those confusing twists and turns, guess where it ends up? Exactly where God intends it to. To its final fruition. When God promises something, we can know it's going to happen. It's as good as done. Paul ends this section by concluding, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he have, have mer- may have mercy on all. Now, all here doesn't mean all people. This isn't universalism, right? He's talking about all his people. It kind of gives us this Felix culpa, this happy sin, if you've never heard that uh, theological statement. Felix culpa argues that sin is wicked and evil, and yet... God works in spite of it to display his grace. The sin kind of provides a black backdrop to highlight the brilliance of the diamond of God's goodness. God doesn't cause anyone to sin. We've said that before already in the sermon. However, sin becomes an opportunity to receive God's grace. Think about this. Had Adam and Eve never eaten the fruit, would we have seen the beauty of the cross? That's what he means by Felix culpa here, right? By this happy sin. The sin that is bad and evil and destructive and wicked, God has sovereignly worked through, not caused, but worked through so that we may now taste the sweetness of grace. That's kind of what he's doing with the Jews here. Allowing them to reject. Why? So they can feel the beauty and glory of repentance when the time comes. He's working in all of that. He's working to display his glory and grace and in such a way that at the end of days, the church and every being in heaven, all the angels who are watching this happen will be surprised, confounded by his manifold wisdom. In a sense, in God's redemptive plan, he's showing off how wise and amazing he is. Even angels longing to look into these things because they don't get it. You know what's gonna, what it's going to be like? It's not, a lot of us talk about, oh, I can't wait till Sunday I can finally know. 
you're not going to know. You're going to stand back and go, whoa, that's the wise God. I don't understand how he did any of that. But he did it. He displaces manifold wisdom. Now, if God's strange ways in Romans 11 have you scratching your head, then Paul has successfully communicated his point. Your wisdom is limited. It is God's wisdom that accomplishes his purpose. And just think of how that's true of everything we know about God. Who else would have planned for his world-saving king to save the world, not through swords and armies, but through a bloody wooden cross. I wouldn't have planned that. Who else could have planned that the tomb that was once the sign of absolute depression in the sense of Jesus buried in there and all the disciples saying, we had hoped he would be the one to save Israel. Now it becomes the sign that he is saving Israel because he's risen from the dead. God is a confounding, frustratingly confounding God. For people who like to be on the know, God's constantly laughing at people like us. Because he's working and you don't understand it, but he's working. So what do you do with all that? You might say, okay, well, thanks, Pastor. I'm gonna walk out more confused than I did coming in. Don't know what to do with this. Can I just commend you to do the thing that Paul tells you to do? Paul gets done confusing all, you know, communicating all these confusing twists and turns in God's plan. Jews are rejecting, Gentiles are accepting, Jews will someday be jealous and accept again, and God's going to be glorified. It's all going to work out according to what he wants to do. What then? Here's what he says. Oh, the depth. Listen to the tone. Oh, the depth. Not the shallowness, but the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? My friends, when we look at the work of God, especially in Scripture, none of us go, aha, I get it now. If anything, it shows how big he is. If anything, it shows how sovereign he is. If anything, it shows how limited and small we are. So, with that, all we do is we praise him and we trust. Just as Paul says, for from him, and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We may not know how it works, but we know it will work out for his glory. Now with that, I have the happy joy of ending Romans 9 through 11. Never to visit again, hopefully, right? So, all right. Uh, these last few weeks, we have gotten to delve into some really deep theology with Romans 9 through 11. I hope it's been a blessing for you. Um, we will be getting into Romans 12 here very soon. And uh, so I hope that you'll come back next week ready to, uh, to study Romans 12. Go ahead and read in advance and so that you can come to the church having read the text already. But let's pray and just ask God to be with us for the remainder of our worship. 
Father God, we thank you so much for these deep truths. God, I thank you for the confusion that I've had. Father, I can only imagine how many people are confused after listening to me. A confused speaker doesn't lead to a logical audience, Father. And at the same time, Father, I just want to thank you for our confusion. Our confusion confirms one thing. You are the only wise God. I thank you that your ways are unsearchable. I thank you that there's depth to your knowledge that we will never be able to reach the bottom of. I thank you that you work in ways that we don't understand. I thank you that we can read headlines of the Ukrainian war, of economic uh, depressions, of uh, the loss of life, of fears of the future, and all these different things, and yet still know that though the headlines say all those things, you're prom- what they don't say, but what's true is that you're keeping your promises. And one day Jesus will return to walk this earth with us. We will eat and breathe and celebrate in his presence. And the full number of your people will be saved. Not one of us will be left out. Because you are a kind and gracious God. We pray for those that are rejecting the gospel to repent before their rejection leads to eternal separation. And Lord, we live in the hope of knowing that as long as someone lives, your kindness and power can graft anyone in. And I pray that you will do that through our church, that people will hear the gospel, will repent, believe, and experience the goodness of being grafted into your people. We love you and we pray this in your son's name, amen.